Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Your Voice First podcast. If you'd like to learn more, find us on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and every other social platform at Voice First AI. You are here to find your voice, and we're here today with Chad Oda. Chad, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Pat. First place I met you was at Voice Lunch. Um, I'm curious how you first found out about Voice. First, shouts out to Voice Lunch, amazing community. How did you initially find out about them? Yeah, you know, it's crazy, actually. Um, you know, we were sort of just talking about, uh, you know, live streaming and stuff like that before we got on the podcast. And I was actually doing our weekly LinkedIn Live Fireside Chat, where we just generally talk about conversational AI, chatbots, voice. And I had the pleasure of having Carol, who I think you're acquainted with and who helps coordinate Voice Lunch. And, you know, he was asking some really insightful questions on there. And he had reached out after and was so gracious to invite me. And uh, next thing you know, I was jumping on the Voice Lunch with you guys. Oh, wow. And I did want to jump in on this. So what is the podcast that you run? Yeah, so we actually run a couple of different things. So the first thing we run is our weekly LinkedIn Live fireside chats. And uh, we generally talk about just like pretty informal conversations about like insights, best practices, you know, sort of news around the chatbot space. Um, and we also sort of show tech demos that are specifically around sort of the consulting work we do, which is Microsoft Teams, chatbots and you know some of the cool implementations you can do around that and the second thing we run is the bot podcast um, which we're actually going to rebrand to the conversational ai podcast where we get to talk to really awesome people in the space you know whether that's from the enterprise space the you know the vendor space we've talked to people from google and live person you know um all across the board startups big or small um we just really get to uh, sort of pick their brains and you know have really interesting conversations like this one here. Now hold up, did you say you're working with Microsoft in conversational AI? That is correct. Microsoft is the one. Interesting. I feel like most people, when we talk about voice, they think Amazon Alexa or Google or they think Siri, but you're dealing with Microsoft. That's right. So I want to start this conversation with an engagement I had on TikTok. So go for it. on Monday. I posted the video of us about to do this podcast and I mentioned in big words, Microsoft and someone that's based out of France interacted and he said, wait, I thought they deprecated Cortana. Did I, I wanted to check in with you. Have they deprecated Cortana? They have, they have deprecated Cortana. So you're working with Microsoft. They've deprecated Cortana. What, what are they doing with voice? Tell me there's gotta be a secret we're missing out on. Yes, exactly. So that's entirely why we're so bullish on this Microsoft ecosystem, Microsoft stack. Um, okay, so I'll break it down. So first of all, like the first thing is like when we think about conversational AI, we don't think about it just as voice or just as chatbots. We think about it as a continuum, as any interface that can support conversational AI and drive some sort of action to them. So what we have begun to notice, which is why we built our practice around Microsoft, is the fact that Microsoft will be one of the top companies that's focused on driving business efficiency within the workplace, utilizing conversational AI. You know, today what that looks like is Microsoft Teams chatbots. Think about like how powerful that is 
as an employee to point at a chatbot and to write a message and get a report back instead of browsing through four or five windows. Hmm. Now, that's where they're starting. Where they're going to end up is when they redeploy Cortana. Now, Cortana is actually built on a acquisition they had made a couple of years ago. And that company was called Semantic Machines. Now, I've heard through the grapevine and I've also seen tech demos from 2019. So if you look back on YouTube to 2019, there's a Cortana tech demo that shows this productivity multi-turn voice dialogue where the person is talking to their phone over the course of going throughout their day, they're updating calendar invites, they're changing them, they're adding them, all multi-turn dialogue on a voice assistant. And that's where we're gonna end up. Mm -hmm. So what I see right now within the Microsoft ecosystem is they're putting all the pieces together. They're building a robust architecture, mm -hmm. a framework around building conversations and dialogues, that's bot framework. They're building out a capable NLU platform, which is called Microsoft Lewis. They're building in all the integrations necessary to have uh, business process automation by integrating Microsoft Power Apps, Microsoft Power Automate. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have all that together, now that enables you to build really comprehensive and powerful uh, conversational AI. Today, only in bots, but tomorrow is going to be on Cortana. So that is where we see a lot of power today. Do you think Microsoft is more primed to take the conversation in the workplace than an Amazon Alexa or a Google Assistant? Like, what is Microsoft? I think you've mentioned yeah. it a little bit with the Power Apps, but what does Microsoft have over the other two in terms of workplace adoption? Yeah. So, what I would say first of all is when you look at a company, you're not just looking at one product offering or one service, right? You're looking at the ecosystem that surrounds that. That's typically what makes it really powerful. So with Microsoft, if we're just to start looking at business adoption for cloud applications, they have one of the highest adoptions with Office 365. Okay, that's that's easy. That's an easy gimme, right? In comparison, we can look at something like G Suite with Google, right? Microsoft far eclipses the adoption rate. But getting closer to conversation, now we're looking at Microsoft Teams. Microsoft Teams eclipsed Slack. And Slack for the longest time was generally known as the top dog for business messaging. Microsoft eclipsed them a couple years ago. And now years they're ago? getting, uh, yeah, a couple years ago, actually. I didn't know that either. I had to look that up um, a couple weeks ago. It's crazy, right? I didn't, didn't know that. That's amazing. Okay, right. so, so they've got a big ecosystem and that, that's what's separating them. Right, so like if you sort of think about Teams now, Teams literally is Skype combined with a powerful messaging solution that's connected to all of the backend solutions that Microsoft has. Dynamics, SharePoint, Power BI, hmm. um, a myriad of different applications hmm. that have pre-built connectors into the ecosystem, right? So if you begin to sort of think about why it's so powerful, it's, it's like, it's not just there's business messaging, it's not just that I can build bots on top of it. It's the fact that there's already a number of pre-built connectors to pull data from backend solutions within the Microsoft ecosystem that already exists. And I think that ecosystem makes it powerful, right? If you look at Slack, Slack is great. Slack has some integrations, but the thing is, is it's not a comprehensive solution set per mm. se, right? And you'll have to build out a lot of those integrations custom and manual specific to your organization. 
right? So that's where I see Microsoft having an edge in this sort of battle. It's not just about any of the individual components. What's valuable is the entire ecosystem. That's super interesting. I've, I've, in my mind, I've always, fi uh, recently I've figured Microsoft out of the conversational AI voice battle. Yeah. But that's only because I was only imagining it as Cortana. You're bringing it to a whole yeah. new light of it's, it's more than any of the individual pieces. It's, it's the whole ecosystem. But I think this is a good leeway into voice versus chat. Like Cortana yeah. is just the, vo the voice component of Microsoft, right? But right. there's other chat elements outside of Cortana. So even with Cortana deprecated, there's still chat. Like Teams is one example. Are, are there other examples outside of Teams? Yeah. So, I mean, really, I guess I would think about it in this way. You know, any of the automation you can build in the back end, you can really always decide what interface you want to deploy that on, right? It could be a web application. It could be a chat solution. It could be a voice solution. You know, it's really dependent upon what are the pros and cons of using that interface to surface that information, right? Or what is, how functional is it? How accessible is it, right? So I would hmm. sort of say that you know, when you sort of weigh the pros and cons of different modalities, right, you really want to do it within the sense of like, are you building a customer centric experience? And I know that's like, literally, that is a, a horse that's been beaten to death many times, right? Make it customer centric, but it's so true. But I think sometimes new technology comes out, and we either want to build everything, every single facet of use case into that one technology, you know, or we just totally disregard you know, that it needs to be customer centric in the design process. So I would say that, you know, just being mindful that every single use case sometimes can work really great on voice, might work really good on chatbots, might be a better web application, right? Mm. But it's, it's just, you know, figuring out, is it customer centric? So I would say certainly between chatbots and voice, there are a number of different pros and cons between each modality. For example, with a chatbot, um, essentially, I have a number of references when I'm using it, right? Because I essentially can go forwards and backwards in a conversation. So, you know, if I say something and an action is taken, I can go back and look at that. So I have a frame of reference. Whereas with voice, voice has a higher cognitive load, right? So I need to keep multiple things in my head at the same time in order to move in any one direction. But that's not to say that it's not easier to use in certain circumstances. Sometimes it's way easier to use for simple single turn requests, right? Um, I'll, I'll give a, another example, right? So I think, I think chatbots, um, uh, for example, are a good way to move people through complex dialogues um, because there is the visual aid to it, right? Now with voice, voice is not always the best in outputting large amounts of structured data. Like it's just not a good experience, right? So for example, if mm. I were to talk to an Alexa and say, you know, tell me like what were my uh, bank charges for the month of January? And then it starts reading off robotically like a 20 page line item list. That's not a good experience, right? So it's essentially just matching up. How does the interface best complement that modality? Hmm. Um, and perhaps, and this is something I'm sure we may talk about, sometimes it's better to integrate both of them. You know, if I can talk about voice for some of the components and see visuals for others, that could be a really good experience too, depending on the use case. 
That's very interesting what you said about chat being better for those complex workloads with the reference because I feel like we have a strict focus on voice. So we lack, by being conscious of one thing, we're lacking consciousness in these other areas which you have chosen to be aware of. With voice, we found the very simple interactions, the ones that are just like an invocation phrase only, to have the highest engagement and the highest overtime like customers keep coming back because it's, it's simple and it, it solves a real world use case. And I keep wondering why voice has not picked up for some of these more complex conversations. Yeah. You're raising a lot of good points here. And, and one that I, um, I'm sh- asynchronous, is that, is that another, I mean, that feels like another aspect to me of why a chat might be better is like, with voice, there's only a 10 second window that yeah. I have before the mic cuts off. Whereas with the chat, I can, like you say, scroll back through the history. I can reference other things. I can process and then I can type again. And like, there seems to be a lot of reasons why chat is better, especially for a lot of these complex things in your head. Why, why even look at voice? Like, it seems like chat should be the bedrock and you should start with that because you've got the history. They're better for the complex conversations that a lot of people want to have. You can have it asynchronously. It provides a lot of benefits for your customer. Why, why would we even consider voice if chat's really that cool? Yeah. I mean, I, I think you sort of spoke to it and, and I spoke to it as well. It's, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's looking at what the use case is, right? If it's really, you know, singularly focused invocations that are one turn. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to talk to Alexa every single time I want to play music. I'm not going to, I, it's just like, how much mental power am I having to uh, exercise to accomplish said given task, right? And if I can do it easier or faster on one or the other based on the use case, I'm gonna do that. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, you have to look at every interface as it has its own unique pros and cons, right? What are the pros and cons with voice? What are the pros and cons with chat? What are the pros and cons with a web application? and balance those things out, right? So I think voice is better for some things than others, and then chatbots are better for other things, right? But I think in the long run, my vision is it doesn't matter. Um, in the future, we're not confined to individual interfaces. We're not confined to individual interfaces. We're going to have an orchestration of multiple interfaces, right? Because if you think about it, the more contextual data we can get off of any interaction um, provides a more informed interaction, right? So for example, if I'm talking to a voice assistant and, you know, let's say in five years, computer vision and, you know, analysis is much better. You have computer vision looking at my facial expression as I talk to Alexa, right? Now, maybe instead of trying to like try and leverage too much sentiment analysis processing on the voice component, it can literally just look at my expression. And maybe that was going to be an easier way to actually get that I was a little annoyed at the interaction. Mm. Right? It's or, not about the parts. It's about the power of the ecosystem working together. Exactly. So like I, I generally think that and, you know, like I'm, I think this was something that was brought up during the voice lunch, you know, where we were talking about you know, why is voice commerce so hard, right? And I think this goes back to that conversation where it's like literally every single thing that you can buy has a degree of complexity in regards to the number of attributes and variables associated with that purchase decision, right? So buying commoditized goods um, 
is rather simple. And I think we saw a great example during Singles Day, uh, which is a Chinese holiday, um, for the Alibaba voice-enabled speaker. Like, I think there was like 11 million purchases of eggs, rice, really commoditized products. Now, the complexity of that is very low. But if you were to tell me, I want to buy a car just over voice. Now, that is very difficult because it's like the, evalu- the number of uh, uh, complexity of attributes is way higher. But if you put a screen in front of me and I can use voice, now that feels very powerful. So the way that I would actually extrapolate um, some sort of model or framework around this is to think about what does the hierarchy of customer experience look like Hmm. at the most bottom level at the most bottom level of customer experience it's literally i just want the brand to give me the information so i could do it on my own that is the basic level right you're giving the customer information so they can figure it out on their own you're Hmm. not solving it for them you're not doing anything right you're just giving them the information so that is pretty much self-service customer support portals that we've become accustomed to right it's like the company's not solving it. They're just giving me information so I could do it on my own. Now, at the highest level, at the highest level, mm-hmm. that's where you feel like you have superpowers. So tell me I'll more. give you an example. Tell me more about these superpowers. Yes. So companies have invested tremendous amount of money in customer experience, you know, not just through voice, but, you know, just through, you know, sales marketing solutions that have leveraged, you know, uh, several data points to make the buyer's journey better. Mm -hmm. Um, Or through the just user experience of a certain application and how it converged all those data points together in such a way where I felt as a customer empowered Mm. that I could point to something and make something happen. Mm. And that should overall be our objective Mm. when we're deploying any type of experiential Mm. interface. Now, the best example I could give you for one that's at the top of the strata is looking at something like the first, remember the, so customer experience is always something that's a moving target because once we get that reference point, we're going to expect more. But if you could remember the first time you ever used Uber, what did that make you feel like? A superhuman, definitely a superhuman. I was walking down, I was in Chicago, I was leaving, actually I was working at Uptake at the time, I was leaving called the uber and it was just like there i i did feel like a superhero exactly so i feel like that is the objective that we should try and accomplish you know so it's like if we can do that with Hmm. a single interface for one use case great let's do that if we need to do multiple interfaces to make that streamlined let's do that you know but at the end of the day that should be the objective now The one thing I will say is customer experience, we spend a lot of time thinking about that. Um, You know, I think for voice, it's still moving target. For chatbots, it's a little bit more mature, still moving target. But if we think about employee experience, that is like night and day. If you, it sounds like you've worked in corporate before. And if you remember just the internal tool sets you use, those are miles away, miles away from any interface we would use on a customer basis. So I would say that is an area that we should probably spend a little more time thinking about. And that's what your company is helping to solve a lot of are those, there's a lot of those employee pain points and it's almost like the government moves super slow to adopt these new technologies. Enterprise a little bit faster, but still not nearly as fast as the experimenting pioneering humans that are willing to throw stuff at the wall and 
but you've got more of those legal hurdles to jump over. So I feel like in the personalized voice community, the pushback is generally privacy concerns in terms of not wanting to integrate a chatter of voice into their daily lives. Like big brother is spying on me. Do those same concerns exist in like in the, the audience of Microsoft, more of like the enterprise business employee to employee environment? Um, Is the adoption different in those environments that are dealing with Microsoft? Yeah, so privacy, I think generally is going to be concerned no matter where you go. Um, So I I think that's going to be like a standard trend we continue to see. I think the I think there's a there's a certain degree where it's less a factor because typically, you know, within organizations, they're typically intranets or the data is typically walled off from the outside world. So you do have a a bit of an easier time handling that, right? Because it's not necessarily personal information. It's just sort of internal corporate information that's already protected by a number of layers of security um, provided your, your uh, you know, cybersecurity department or whoever sort of handles that type of compliance. So I, I think wanted, it is it. Yeah. I wanted to talk about that data point you said of on singles day. What was, did you say 11 million purchases? Don't, Don't quote me on that, but I know it was tens of millions for okay. sure. And those are the for number sure. of purchases that were made by voice? That's, that's correct. That data sounds way more than the voice purchases. And that's in a single day, millions of purchases okay. going on by voice. Have we, I don't know if the data is there, but have we seen that kind of commerce adoption in a year in America, in the U.S.? You know, I really couldn't tell you, but okay. I don't. I don't, I don't believe that's, that's the case. case. I mean, I mean otherwise, otherwise, I feel like, you know, I, I feel like, like if that, that was the case, case we'd hear that, that number thrown around a lot more as validation just within, you know, our own voice ecosystem. ecosystem. I, think I think more people, people would probably mention that as some validation that the market's maturing. I don't, I don't think, think we've heard that yet. Do you think you mentioned that a lot of the purchases made on singles, they were very um, like basic like items, base. not not purchases yeah. that you needed to. Not a car, not a camera, right. not a new laptop, like rice, eggs, stuff like that. Do you think that's why they saw the 11? Like, is that the difference? Are we not offering these kind of simple commodity purchases in the U.S., but they are on Alibaba? I believe they are in the U.S. in Amazon. I mean, I think if I remember correctly, like reorder was like one of the primary use cases to get people to buy stuff on Alexa. Um I guess I'm, what I'm trying to drill to is yeah. like, why, why the, di- why do you think the difference? What's the difference? Yeah. yeah. You know, that, that is a hard one um, to sort of define what is the single factor involved with that. Um, I certainly am not an expert on the topic. Um, you know, I, I think someone who you recently got connected to Lawrence, who sort of runs that consortium of voice companies in China um, might have a, a, a bit more elaboration on this, but you know, I can, I can at least guess, I'll give you my best guess. So, you know, just the digital ecosystem in China and the Chinese consumer um, tends to be a lot more digital centric. Um, just how their entire ecosystem is sort of created. They're very much more mobile centric than us, extremely more mobile centric than us. Um, their social media is almost exclusively on mobile devices, WeChat, for example, their predominant um, social media platform is the messaging solution, right? So they're very mobile centric. Hardly anyone uses credit cards, physical credit cards in China. Almost all of those payment transactions are facilitated over um, a number of these different platforms that are essentially social messaging platforms in conjunction with payment processing platforms. And you know, there's IoT integration. So when people go into restaurants, 
they can automatically get their order on there. Um, so I would say to a certain extent, the level of like technology centricity around the average Chinese consumer is much higher by way of adoption. So it may provide some idea about why they might be adopting these types of technologies much quicker than, you know, I think the U.S. has always been a bit slower to adopt technologies than, you know, some of our counterparts in the East to a certain extent. So I feel like that might be a factor. Um, but I think to your point, the thing to note is, is that the use case still is like these like simple products, which is the same in the U.S., Right. So I don't think it's an issue over the type of products being transacted. I think it's, you know, the, the consumer mindset for ado technology adoption is a bit higher. So I feel hmm. like the bottleneck out here is mainly one that is around education. Right. And then that off obviously leads into the conversation that you guys were just on um, with the voice lunch, which was discoverability. Right. Yes. Yes. And I think this is the perfect time to kind of just mention this book. AI Superpowers, uh, China Silicon Valley, New World Order. Great book. Also, I highly recommend Big, uh, The Big Nine by Amy Webb, talking about the G-Mafia in the U.S. versus the, the bat in China. Um, in terms of general purpose technology, it's, there's a section in the book that talks about general purpose technologies. The, f the, the big three that already existed were industrialization, electrification, followed by computerization, and now we're into mm -hmm. artificial intelligence. And the interesting right. thing about it was the past three, the U.S. kind of led. Industrialization, the U.S. and Britain, U.S. and Europe. Um, electrification, U.S., again, some in Europe, but a lot of U.S. Computerization, definitely the U.S. Artificial intelligence is the first time that an Asian country has kind of been up on the same level. And tagging on to what you were just saying about the digital consumer in China, the, or the regular consumer in China, seems to be very willing to adopt to these new forms of technology such that on singles day we're seeing millions of purchases in a single day in a way that even on black friday we're not seeing those kind of purchases on voice yet coming into this new general purpose technology do you have any thoughts like reflecting on this book of the trajectories of us and china in terms of artificial intelligence yeah absolutely um i will say i will say the in something interesting is that you know, although we may have this like preponderance that Asian countries typically are faster at adopting technologies, I would say that's not like completely distributed across all Asian countries. For example, a lot of us think Japan is very technology centric, but they actually are getting a lot of flack lately for using fax machines still to transmit results for coronavirus patients. So, you know, I, I think there it's it's not always an equal distribution. So I would certainly say China going back to the book, Kai-Fu Lee, I mean, he used to essentially run, you know, the uh, Chinese China. division of Google, right? Um, so incredibly insightful. Um, so I think, I think, you know, per the book, you know, we're certainly at a stage right now with artificial intelligence, where it no longer requires the expertise that it may have in the 1970s and 80s, where you actually needed people that really had the fundamental expertise and had the knowledge from a research perspective to build these models. Today, the model matters a little bit, right? You'll, you'll squeak out certain percentages of optimization on the models. But I think the thing that, you know, you and I both took away from the book is the fact that, you know, getting access to data is going to be a bigger differentiator than expertise building models. 
And I think that is a leveling of the playing field because now the uh, opportunity lies in whoever has access to the most data, right? And you can effectively tie that to which countries have the largest multinational um, incumbent technology companies. Hmm. And they reside in the US and they reside in China. And all of those companies generate a significant amount of data, which provides that opportunity to just be this insurmountable, um, you know, competitive players in the marketplace because of that virtuous cycle, right? It's like you build a model, you test it, you get more data, you build a model, you test it, you get, and if you just start, you know, really ramping up the RPM on those things, you get to a point where no one can compete with you. Mm -hmm. And as we see today, China and the US are those, you know, 500 pound gorillas, uh, AI gorillas, so to speak, that have the data, right? So I think we're going to continue to see that trend. Um, and there's people much smarter than me that, you know, have sort of looked at these things. But um, I certainly continue to see that trajectory. Um, I think the other component here, too, is, you know, what you were just talking about, those sort of four transformational phases, you know, what we're moving into is this state of the fourth uh, industrial revolution, as most people say it, right? It's the merging of the software, the hardware, and the biological worlds, right? So it's like taking this notion of like IoT from like a couple of years ago, and it's putting it on steroids, right? And that really is going to be, you know, it, it's going to be the next several years that it's going to be very interesting to sort of see what unfolds there. Shifting back into um, modalities, I love this this theme that I feel like has kind of been pervasive in the episode of it's not about the individual component, it's about the ecosystem. And I agree with you that all the modalities are going to represent different contexts, but I'm curious of the ones you think are most important, whether that's to your customers or in general. Which yeah. modalities do you think are the most, um, where do you think you're focusing a lot of your energy into and attention into modality-wise? Yeah, so I, I think I can explain that on, I'll explain that within the context of a maturity model, um, a maturity model within the environment that we work in, right? So that is the Microsoft ecosystem, the Microsoft stack, um, when it comes to conversational AI. Um, so how do we think about modalities, right? So essentially, since Cortana has been deprecated, right, we can't use it today, which is fine, right, which is fine. But I think what that means in the meantime is create simple value-driven chatbots that create, that drive use cases that create instantaneous value, right? So that's knowledge management, that's business process automation. That could be, you know, some sort of support tickets internally. Um, and all of those things are super feasible today. So it's implementing low hanging fruit use cases and they're chat enabled today. And what you do is you get value and then secondly, you build up those conversational data sets. And over time, what you begin to do is you validate those use cases. And at phase two, you can begin to actually extend those use cases based upon additional conversational data mm -hmm. that falls outside of the initial use cases, mm -hmm. which then helps to inform and make better you know, uh, solutions as those things sort of scale. And then the other component to that is we'll see a, a increasing level of adoption around conversational intelligence. So it's like, what sort of additional 
value can we glean from these conversations, perhaps not in real time, maybe after, or potentially in real time, that are triggering other automations, APIs, RPAs. Um, and then in the long term for us, when Microsoft finally does deploy Cortana, we are now positioned to know the use cases that are going to work, have the conversational data to essentially utilize to train these models, and now plug into an experience that very much is voice and chat enabled, a hmm. multimodality experience. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm sort of bounded to Microsoft's roadmap at this point. Um, right. But I think it. I think the maturity model works quite well. Um, what do you tell me more about that? Tell. Like explain yeah. the maturity model is kind of going over my head. What do you mean by maturity model? Yeah. So maturity model is sort of a combination of what is the complexity of solutions that I can deploy right at the base level? Like how complex is that solution? And then at the upper end, um, like that is like the most complex um, type of solution. For example, you know, another good example is like self-driving cars, mm -hmm. right? So we can think at like, at like, uh, I think they call it like uh, type one or, or at the lowest level of self-driving, all yes. they can do is just lane management. It keeps you driving in a straight line. Um, it could slow down, it could speed up. And then as you get to higher degrees of complexity, you know, maybe at this point it can take you onto the freeway and it can take you off of the freeway. It could change lanes. And, you know, and there's another layer that, you know, now it's fully autonomous. It can drive on side streets and on the freeway and on highways. And in the very same um, thinking, that's how we're thinking about chatbots, right? So we're thinking about it both as like this evolution that's mapped to Microsoft's roadmap um, of finally getting to voice. And at the other end, we can also think about it from the perspective of complexity of the solutions we're deploying. So at the most simple solution, it's just notifications, right? There's a messaging channel, there's a voice channel. Most simple use case is notifications. You know, it's telling me, you know, hey, these servers need to get provisioned right now. Or it's telling me, you know, here are, here's the sales quota for this month, right? So I'm getting some sort of value-driven notifications. So that's the simplest, right? And then a layer up is simple Q&A, right? Perhaps one to two, turn uh, interactions that are providing some sort of value based upon knowledge bases that exist or knowledge bases that can be queried. And then another layer up is now we have all of the preceding layers in addition to structured dialogues, right? So we have multi-turn dialogues that are some are driving to some sort of task driven um, end, right? Um, perhaps that is, you know, getting the data for an expense report or walking me hmm. through an employee onboarding sequence hmm. um, or letting me enter sales hmm. data into a CRM system, right? And, you know, at that level, you also need dialogue management and context management. If I want to switch between different states in the bot or voice experience. Now, a layer up from that is really just coming down to increased context or personalization that we could potentially pull from third-party data that now helps me to inform upon that specific conversation an end user is having. So for example, if I know that you were on a specific website, on a specific page, now I can curtail a conversation that you may have with the bot to be much more relevant to what that person, whatever that task that person is trying to achieve, right? Now, the end vision 
is the vision I think we all have. That is one of a HAL 9000 or, you know, some sort of, you know, AGI enabled experience. Um, and that's much farther down the road. But I think the common theme through all of this is how much can you feel like you have superpowers, which translates to how much can the machine anticipate what I want? And if you can solve those things, you can make it killer experience. Hmm. Would you say superpowers are machines ability to predict? Hmm. Yeah, I would, I would certainly say that's like a component of it. Absolutely. You know, I think it is using that prediction to anticipate what the end user wants or what they would like to accomplish. Um, I think generally superpowers are just doing less with more. I mean, doing more with less, that would be bad to do less with more. <laughs> You, you mentioned um, HAL 9000, and uh, it, it gets me to think more of general, general intelligence. Mm -hmm. And recently, OpenAI, uh, the institution that is trying to generate beneficial artificial general intelligence, released a new piece of software. I, mm -hmm. Did you see the release of Jukebox? I did not. So they, did not they just released this new software called Jukebox. And the reason I bring it up is when we were on our pre-call on Monday, we were talking yeah. a little bit about Alexa for musicians and kind of this intersection of voice and conversations with music. And this came out and I'm curious of your thoughts on it. So if, if you have the capacity to open up another, uh, that might be a distraction. So let me just kind of explain. I, uh, I think I might know, is it doing some sort of, it's doing some sort of generation of music, I'm assuming. Yeah, yes, it generates music. So it generates not only the full audio, but it also generates um, the lyrics and the, the vocals. So yeah. they gave examples of Elvis Presley and Katy Perry. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was like a combination of the music generation as well as kind of these uh, deep fake vocals that we've been seeing with like Lyrebird, where you upload enough yeah. data with that, it like combines them both together and then there's a video transcription. So on, if you check out their Twitter page and you're curious to learn more, check out OpenAI. And then uh, you'll see a video on their Twitter page of the actual conversation. Um, are you a musician yourself or do you play? I'm curious why it kind of sparked your interest the other day when we started talking about Alexa for musicians. So I, it's funny. Uh, I played clarinet in high school, but since then I've, I've, not, I've not been musically gifted. But I am certainly an avid fan and consumer of great musicians and, and their works. Um, but it's, it's interesting to me. The reason why it resonated so much was because I've actually, you know, talked to several musicians in the space that are now in conversational AI. Um, mm. So uh, a couple of them, uh, Arjun Ori, who runs Shop Message, which is Facebook Messenger e-commerce. They have done like hundreds of millions of dollars in helping with abandoned carts. Um, he actually is a, a singer. And, um, you know, it was interesting to me, like how he transitioned into conversational AI. And then, um, man, whoever runs uh, Janice, uh, I believe the person that runs Janice AI, which essentially enables dialogue flow integrations with Facebook Messenger bots, he also used to be or is a musician as well. Mm. Um, so it was interesting seeing those things. But my primary interest um, I've been finding is the fact that probably the most common thing people do with Alexa is ask to play music. But Amazon owns that entire infrastructure. Why are we not extending those experiences to have musicians? I mean, if, if Amazon Alexa or any voice enabled smart speaker 
literally brings any experience closer to home. It literally brings it in the home. Why would you not extend that functionality for musicians who you're already consuming their music? It gives you a touch point to go deeper, you know, because I think every single interface, you know, requires a different format of engagement, right? So the same content you put on Instagram is not always going to work on, on LinkedIn. So I think what we're hitting right now is we're, we're, we're getting really low hanging fruit use cases on voice, but I think which I like about what your framework does for voice is you're creating a platform, a framework, an architecture that enables musicians to build, you know, pretty capable voice experiences. And I think it just makes sense. You know, so I think musicians make sense. And I think it also makes sense to start to bring in more of the, like the entertainment um, medium into voice enabled experiences. And we are to a certain extent seeing those with, I've seen some pretty extensive games. I've seen some pretty extensive uh, stories that the, the BBC has put out. So we are moving in the right direction, but I haven't seen it with musicians until what you showed me. Do you think that musicians are kind of perfectly poised to transition into conversational AI? Like a lot of us didn't start in conversational AI. Yeah. We've, we've, we all had a different background and then conversational AI came to us. Do you think musicians are like, in, they are primed for this conversational AI? And That's a funny question. Because the reason I, I ask asked, is the number yeah. one musician on Alexa for Musicians right now is Malvi Moo. Yeah. And yeah. not only is she a musician, she also mm. makes money in voiceover acting. So she has been expanding more and more into voiceover. And I'm like, huh, are the most successful musicians also going to be leveraging the same ones that are leveraging conversational AI? So... That's a, so that's, so I, I say that's a funny question is because I asked that same question when I interviewed Arjun and when I also interviewed the founder of Janus because they were both musicians too. And, you know, they didn't say there was a necessarily a direct link, but if I remember correctly, they had sort of said to the effect that, you know, music was a passion for them, but it also, I think, gives you a unique, uniquely creative perspective for improvisation. And I think that lends itself to conversational interfaces because, you know, I think literally for everyone, this is the first time we are building, you know, real automated solutions that consumers use. And we're trying to figure out what the right format is. I mean, you know, I, I had had a conversation with uh, some of the solution owners at BBC for their voice enabled solution back in 2018. And, you know, that was the general conversation. It's like, hey, we're trying a lot of different formats. That's why we put out these voice-enabled stories. That's why we are switching things up with our experiences because they want to find that fit. And I potentially think musicians, they, the creativity potentially lends itself to coming up with things that are more unique. We're thinking outside of the box here a mm -hmm. little bit. Mm -hmm. Their ability to think outside of the box and Im improvise, that, that's very interesting. And it's like they're already Im improvising with their voice. If they're already experimenting, it's a natural flow. Oh, voiceover acting. Oh, Alexa. Like, and that that that. I don't want to talk about my product because we're, we're we're here talking about you. But um, that's super interesting. So you say where? I'm I'm curious to hear more about the use cases. How have they shifted? Yeah. They have shifted into like what are the roles that you've seen musicians kind of come into in conversational AI? Yeah. So. So one of them, essentially, they run a Facebook Messenger chatbot that helps with uh, e-commerce card abandonment. And essentially, they've been able to save hundreds of millions of dollars of 
um, cart abandonment. So cart abandonment is sort of a, a thing where a consumer will be down a be going down a buyer's journey and they will put the thing in the cart and walk away. So essentially his messenger capability will send them a message and offer them an incentive to buy it. Um, and it's been very successful. Um, and then Janus.ai. So, you know, it's interesting, you know, it's uh, a lot of microcosms in this space, you know, in the voice space and the chatbot space In the chatbot space, um, it, you know, essentially there's this very big messenger chatbot community that it, it seems like a lot of marketers have sort of rallied around these no code tools like ManyChat and ChatFuel. But, mm -hmm. you know, ManyChat and ChatFuel tools are very deterministic button driven conversations, right? They often lack the natural language processing that I think we've sort of become accustomed to in the voice and sort of mid-market and enterprise chatbot space. Mm -hmm. So essentially Janus AI enables the integration between dialogue flow and messenger. Um, so that has been pretty um, transformational for a lot of the people that are running those type of uh, consultancies. Those are such unique niches to have filled. Um, yeah, totally. Wow. Okay. I mean, it's been an amazing uh, podcast. I have not had a conversation like this in a long time. So I want to thank you real quick, but for people that want to continue to get connected with you, um, I know you're not always at voice lunch. So where else can people be connecting with you, Chad? Absolutely. Um, well, first off, you know, thank you so much for having me. I really do enjoy these type of conversations. Um, you know, I think, you know, the more type of conversations we can have, we can throw stuff against the wall and not be concerned about being right or wrong, but just figuring out the way forward as a community, I, I think are the way to do things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at that, thank you. Um, if you're looking to connect, would love to talk to you, reach out to me, add me on LinkedIn. Um, we essentially do weekly fireside LinkedIn live chats talking about conversational AI ecosystem. So make sure to jump in, feel free to throw ideas off the wall. We also run a podcast, um, interview top subject matter experts in both voice and in chatbots. Um, the one we're about to release um, is with the head of voice at Ford. So that should be really cool. Um, otherwise, you know, this has been a blast, man. I want to let you close out the episode. Um, do you have any final intentions or any final thoughts to kind of throw out the episode and, uh, with that as whenever you stop, I'll, I'll stop the episode. Cool. Yeah. Um, man, I feel like, I feel like the last intention piece was really about community and, you know, just having these conversations. Um, you know, so I think I, you know, I would, what I would actually say is, you know, I think we need to see more integration between the chatbot and voice communities. I, I feel like there's a certain, you know, walled off, a little bit, you know, as far as what I can tell at this point. And I think we can really learn a lot from each other. And, you know, I think it's not one side wins or loses all. I think it's we come together and build something better and just a better experience because in the future, it's not going to be one interface. It's going to be a bunch of them. And it's not going to be up to us. It's going to be up to our customers. So at the end of the day, you know, I think community will win. And, um, you know, I appreciate you sort of facilitating this and making this happen and, you know, continue to, uh, you know, push that idea and vision forward. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Your Voice First podcast. If you'd like to learn more, find us on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and every other social platform at Voice First AI.